Welcome once again to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm Hasha Montasser, founder of the Lighthouse. Buying groceries is one of the few lifelong commitments we have without much choice in the matter. And more than a third of a household's disposable income is spent on buying groceries. And yet the industry has typically been a laggard in adopting technology, as I'm sure you have realized. It literally took a pandemic for many local chains to even offer an online option. So in 2016, Amir Arashad decided to tackle the issue and append traditional grocery purchasing to add convenience, technology, and the option to buy in bulk, taking a leaf out of the Costco model in the US. I literally had physical withdrawal symptoms from not having Costco here. Um, You're a big Costco fan. I'm a very big Costco fan. Uh, I just really like the value proposition, the fact that you can, you know, close your eyes and rely on someone procuring quality stuff at a good value for you um, in return for buying it in bulk, pretty much. Um, And I looked around and there wasn't any bulk provider here. Uh, mm. And when you really, you know, being the um, consultant or analyst that I am, I kind of look back at why is that? Why? I mean, you've got large families in the region. Why isn't anybody selling in bulk? And it really came down to the um, infrastructure of the retail landscape in most developing markets. It tends to be extremely fragmented. Yes. So 70% of the number of outlets that actually sell groceries in developing markets, and it's not just in the Middle East, um, are mom and pops in here, you know, bakalas, so to speak. Um, so these guys neither have the cash outlay nor the space to be in the bulk business. Um, but even when you migrate up the sort of the totem pole, so to speak, to what they call the modern trade, you know, your hypermarkets, your supermarkets, and so on, um, they also had a different dynamic from the big box dynamic that exists in the U.S. And it is as such. Um, in the U.S., big boxes are more often than not, on the wrong side of the train tracks. So, you know, you have to be in cheap real estate in order to afford the warehouse. Here, where are most of the supermarkets or hypermarkets? They're basically, by design, anchor spots in very glitzy malls. malls. So high ROI on shelf space is a requirement. So the last thing I want to do if I own expensive real estate uh, is to use that meter of shelf space to put a big old box on it. I basically want to take my meter of shelf space, chop it up into 10 different slots and charge you a listing fee, make money that way, and basically sell smaller configurations. Um, so therefore, bulk went by the wayside or rather never existed in the first place. Day one, was all of this clear to you? I mean, you had mapped this out in the systematic way or this is now hindsight 2020? So the agitation was always there and, and it was kind of driving me to do more analysis. So something about this can be improved and exactly. I may have a way to improve Yeah, and, and like I said, my way of looking at things was always very analytical. Like, why is this not here? What can we do about it? Um, and even though I was in the tech space, I've never, I'm not a developer, I'm not, you know. So the concept of going into a high-tech startup was never really what I set out to do. And can I ask you, Did you think of this particular business as an operations or tech or combo? So, you know, because Last Mile is famously complicated, but how did you think about it? Did you think I'm starting a tech company to solve this problem you you just described? Or, you know what, I'm going to need like an operational genius. Which one came first? So I absolutely did not think about the operational side. So I thought about it actually from a consumer need set perspective. 
um, interviewed a bunch of moms, you know, talked and so on. I had the conviction that if the need is there, you, you, you know, you could serve it. But also the need wasn't only on the front end. Like you mentioned, the need was also on the back end. 100%. When you turned around and looked at, okay, so who can I partner with back then? There really wasn't a lot of options, right? They were just up and coming and so on. Um, and there were a lot of things about this particular segment of the market uh, that were completely, the e-commerce wasn't new, but grocery has always globally been a laggard coming into the tech space. And famously something that was very difficult to, to, Absolutely. to figure out. I mean, it took... In my days, I spent some time in 99 in a startup in New York called Cosmo.com. And at the time, you had Webvan, which was a big player, splashy, and it you know, famously went under. I mean, it took another decade uh, for companies to come back online, and then Amazon, so on and so forth. So you, you really chose sort of a, yeah. a dicey part of the it is. value chain. It is. But you know, the, the thing is, though, what attracted me to it is that the need was so big. And the reason why it's so big is because... If you think about buying anything, anything, nothing touches your life more than grocery. Frequency, and it's a third of disposable household income, a third. And I'm engaged in it on a weekly basis for the rest of my life. I don't have a choice, right? Um, so just, and the market was so, so uh, nascent. I'm like, you know, you know what? Even if we go into this and make a bunch of mistakes. There's still enough room. Exactly. So when I think about the, the sort of bulk element of it, which obviously has a savings component, which makes a lot of sense, but then I think about the people that have space because that requires space ultimately. So if I live in a small apartment, it's not very lucky that I'm going to buy too much in bulk. I don't have the storage space. If I live in a villa, I do have the space. But if I live in a villa, it's also likely that I may not be as cost sensitive. And frankly, yes, you've saved me 10% on you know, tissue paper. Do I care? Can you can elaborate yes, on this? Yes, absolutely. That's an excellent point. So, for, for example, uh, let's start with the definition of bulk, right? So bulk is different things to different people. It depends on your family size. It depends on your consumption patterns and so on. So you might be um, open to buying, you know, 20 cartons of water, but you're never going to buy 20 jars of pickles, right? So it really depends on which... Sure. Category or subcategory. Sure. Really, for us, how we define it, it is basically anything that you do not want to run out of mm. and is a hassle carrying yourself. So it's it's that automatic get it off my to-do list type of a of a of an offering. But back to who is your target audience and how did they think about it? Um we literally tore a page out of Costco on this one. So um basically you want to target people. If, if, you, if people want to save money by buying in bulk, cash outlay is no problem for them at all. Think about it. I mean, the only person who can afford bulk is someone who has money, That's right? So by definition, and by the way, we stumbled onto this, yeah. you know? Um, so by definition, our user base tends to be- More affluent. Very, yes. So why is a more affluent user base interested in saving money? They want a good deal on the good stuff. When you actually walk through the aisles at Costco, I literally did this. I walked through the aisles in Costco and looked at people's watches. 30, 40, 50,000 dollar watches and they're looking at saving money. And they're still money. in Costco. Yeah. Yes, and they're looking at saving money because I mean you have to be I smart. Thought, I thought it was only Egyptians have this gene. <laughs> Clearly it's universal. I mean that's good to know. The whole Shab <laughs> You have to be smart. You have to be smart about your money and if you're smart about it, everybody likes a good deal. No exactly. question. Exactly. 
and and just and people literally they buy stuff and they're not and it's interesting they are not promo prone like we run a promo and they're not buying the stuff on promo they're they're buying the stuff that they want to buy and it tends to be a premium stuff but they want that extra yeah they 10%. get ten percent exactly right Th that's how they want to see it. no that makes a lot of sense actually so now I'm going to fast forward here for a minute. COVID that must have accelerated a lot of those trends, uh, especially, as you said, if it's an affluent household or, oh my God, lockdown, walk us through pre and post and what happened in between. Uh, yeah, it was a baptism by fire for us, imagine. like literally. It literally was a double-edged sword for us. Mm. I think for all players in this, in this industry, big and small, um, demand surged. Uh, surge is probably an understatement. So our last... Um, let's call it March, April time period was sevenfold uh, the prior year. And that is us fulfilling about a quarter of the uh, orders coming in. We physically could not. Oh, of course. Oh, so we were, we're pushing people out. I mean, and if you're telling somebody, I'm going to deliver three weeks out your groceries, I mean, that, that's basically gone. gone. So we were, you know, our warehouse just was bursting at the seams. We had to move to one that's five times the size of, of the one that we had. It was just complete chaos. Our systems were not ready for it. Our people, there, and, and when you add to that, the whole dynamic of the quarantine, so even if you wanted to hire, right? Like, where are you going to hire? How can you move your people to the warehouse? They have to have special passes. So in order to get to a new warehouse, um, situation where it was actually working, you had to buy shelves. Uh, we were essential employees or essential workers, so we could move around, but the guy who makes shelves He's isn't. Not. So, like, how do I get him a pass to get me my shelf? It was just, it was chaos. No, I, I can completely understand that. I mean, I was just reading recently about Amazon. Um, and this is a well-known story, document, well-documented. For years and years, they used to get the Christmas, you know, kind of rush, Thanksgiving and then post, and everybody, all of corporate, would have to go and be picking and packing. And they did it for years. And every year, they would vow that this is the last year this will happen. Next year would be, and they wouldn't be. Um, and that took five, six, seven years. And that's Amazon, literally five, six years, until they hired this guy called Jeff Wilke, apparently, who just retired now or is retiring, who came from a completely operational kind of Walmart-type thinking and changed fundamentally, re-engineered the way they were doing this. So I'm just trying to say that I think no amount of preparation, if you had that or you didn't, would prepare you for something like that. I this. mean, even Amazon. So I was in the States when, when and the latter part of, of this uh, exercise was happening. And uh, you couldn't get anything on Amazon for like three weeks. Ocado, Ocado in, in, in the UK literally closed down the operation for weeks until they figured out, here's how we're going to address this. So So demand is great. I think uh, that fast-forwarded behavior across the board globally which is, which is something we're very, very appreciative of. Um, but then again, it kind of fast-forwarded the need for, for that learning curve to, to be where it needs to be, especially operationally. Um, and that is still very, very painful. And how has it been from the March, April kind of peak post-lockdown to today? I mean, give us a bit of a sense. Have things normalized a bit? You probably caught up a bit on, on your side as well. If I would go today on Balkways and make an order... How long you will get, it take? You, no, you get it the next day. The next uh, yeah. day. Well, I have to say, so uh, demand kind of stabilized because of there was a little bit of a... Of course, panic. Exactly. Um, but we've noticed that a lot of people um, who have explored, like, for example, new users have started to kind of become more regulars. 
Uh, those who existed before, um, we've noticed they have expanded the breadth and width of their, their baskets, right? But at the same time, there are so many more players in the market that you now have to stand for something. You now have to be, you know, in the past, in the, maybe the last two to three years, you just had to exist. Yeah, yeah and right? you were asleep. Exactly. So that was my next question. I mean, you are competing some ways today with the Carrefour's of the world who all woke up. These are giants. You're also competing with the Instacarts and Ketopis that are giving me some things, uh, not obviously in bulk. But so it's, it's, it's actually interesting that you should say that. We actually don't think of ourselves as competing with uh, Instashop and, and Ketopi. Okay. Um, Instashop, sorry. Because... The type of... The need sets. Yeah. So Fair enough. I have a family of four people. Uh, I have a main cart need and then I have a top-up need. Uh, if I was single, I'd buy everything from there. They, they are top-ups. Exactly. So they're, they're either main cart for single or, or, or uh, just couples, single people or couples, um, and top-ups for the rest of us. But Lulu, uh, yes. Carrefour. Yes, so Lulu, Carrefour, absolutely. And then where that um, kind of takes a, a, like where you differentiate yourself there is on service and uh, positioning, targeting, uh, uh, assortment, whatever. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Boxed in the U.S. Yeah, of course. Yes. It's interesting because I know the, the founder, um, and we've, we've had several, we've actually visited their operation in New Jersey and so on, and he was telling me that one of the, in one of their focus groups, this lady literally came out and said, I buy from you because I don't want anybody to see a Walmart box in front of my house. I'm not that person. Oh. Right, so I want to be associated with that kind of lifestyle. Aspiration, exactly. So there are so many different reasons, from a service perspective or otherwise. Yeah. When you're looking at at those competitors, I mean, these are ferocious, very deep-pocketed competitors. How has that? How do you look at your business if you take a snapshot today? So when you actually look at this industry, uh, third of disposable household income, massive. You know, uh, almost maybe two hundred billion dollars in the region, uh, grocery. Um, the penetration of the online space is, you know, single digit at best. It's the equivalent elsewhere. You're talking about 20, 25%. So if everybody who exists today grew fivefold, mm -hmm. right, we're going to be where others are today, which is a very kind of nascent state. You're saying the market is large enough. Now, it's large enough, one, two, there has to be a consolidation and it started, we're starting to see it. We're seeing Delivery Hero buy Instashop. So that's happening in parallel. So really the play is as follows. Can you identify a user base? Can you serve them immaculately? Can you guarantee that you're growing them profitably? Oh, that's the other thing, which we should probably talk about, uh, the dynamics of a startup pre and post COVID. Um, and, and what you really should be focused on. So in the past, most startups used to look at their top line and grow at any, you know, at any anyway. price and so on. Now it's about how can I execute flawlessly? How can I delight my user base? And how can I start making money? Because if I don't, you know, I'm not going to have much of a cushion, right? Um, so that's the game. I want to be able to do that, identify my user base, differentiate myself in their, in their eyes, um, and grow that profitably, that's, that's basically the game. Are you seeing more pressure from your shareholders on that and on the profitability aspect versus Absolutely. before grow, grow, grow? Absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, it's the number one mandate right now. Even if you're growing at, I don't know, whatever. I mean, let's say you're growing at 3x. It is here and now the focus on, on profitability. Mm. You, it, you, if your unit economics don't make sense... Um, you're out the door. So I want to understand a bit of the dynamic. If, if you were completely self-funded today, would you have done something differently 
I'm just curious because it's an experience I went through as well. When we started this, I was just mentioning you earlier, four years ago, it was self-funded. And at some point, we brought out one external shareholder, essentially. I mean, we have a few friends and family, but one main external shareholder, let's say, more institutional. And the idea was to instill a bit of discipline, not that we felt undisciplined, but I felt the need to have a board, um, almost kind of put yourself in that a frame of mind. Now, we're very, very lucky with our shareholder. It's someone that is very, very much aligned with us in terms of how we think. But I would imagine if they weren't, they could be also telling me today certain things. You know, Hashem, for example, you need to know, why are you expanding? Make sure this is happening first. So there's no question in my mind, to your point, that discipline is a huge part uh, of what external uh, investors bring in. Absolutely. Um, I think that the thinking um, across the board in the VC, uh, from VC investors and most others was grow, 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 grow. Uh, until, I think, I think the kind of the tipping point was not COVID. It was before COVID. It was WeWork. In 2019, WeWork, a co-working company based in the U.S. and expanding globally at the time, was found to be suffering tremendous losses while trying to file for an IPO. It led to them cutting their valuation down from $47 billion to $10 billion, aside from their CEO, Adam Newman, resigning and then laying off over 2,000 employees. What WeWork's story did was expose the perils that came with a purely growth-at-any-cost mindset while ignoring profits, and for analog companies to be masquerading as tech businesses to boost their valuation. Many predicted the doom of tech companies. So that's when I personally started getting that pressure. Um, but there was still a belief in um, the growth priority, so to speak. COVID just signed and sealed the need for profitability. Because not only it wasn't just a matter of an ask from investors, it was also the entire value chain changed in structure, right? So I was in a world where I bought things on consignment or credit because that's how the value chain worked. Overnight, that got completely disrupted. I remember this. I'm never going to forget this. I was on the phone with the COO of one of the major distributors, if not the biggest distributor in the region. I need cash. Um, he's like, I've never had to go fight for product using cash. Yeah. I have to spot buy in the market. I've been in this business 30 years. And we are seeing this too. Yeah. 100%. I mean, it's a strange dynamic and a lot of people got burned. And, and again, people don't realize, of course, your business, to some extent, F&B similar. These are not very big margins. So they're thin margins. So the efficiency is so important and cash management and cash flow management is such an important part of how you get to a positive cash flow cycle. So, so once that gets disrupted, it throws the whole business into... Especially when you're a startup, because yeah. by definition, you're not cash rich, exactly. right? Exactly. So, so that, I mean, there was just a lot of aha moments there uh, where we kind of, it's like, this is a different business from the one we, we kind of entered. So I was doing a bit of research um, the last couple of days, and I want to just start with a quote. Sure. You were, I think, narrating a story and telling that you were told by a number of people when you were starting this business, I'm going to quote, your husband does well, you don't need to succeed, unquote. I find that very interesting. Uh, not surprising, but interesting. You went to Harvard Business School, you've done a whole number of things, but yet you were still getting that kind of comment. Explain to me how you, uh, you reacted to it. How you, how did you, uh, just unpack that for me a little bit from your perspective. Sure. So this was uh, at the very, very early stages. Uh, I was still uh, kind of, like I said, uh, peddling my pitch to angels. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, this particular gentleman, very successful um, sort of owner of multiple businesses, um, loved the concept, bought the deck, bought the whole thing. But, you know, as you know, when you're at the angel stage, you're buying the entrepreneur more than anything else. And I didn't think for a second that he questioned my capabilities. It was more about my intent. He actually told me later that um, he, yes, that question because he questioned my intent versus my capability. Sure. So he thought this was like my little retirement project. Sure. Like, you know, I don't want to work for corporate anymore. You know, let's get, let's start a little store, right? That's basic. And he wanted to know how serious I was. Um, and he translated financial need as the only driver Sure. Uh, for for serious. You think you would have asked your husband the same question? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely. So so, and my response was was instantaneous. You're not investing in my husband. You're right. investing in me. Like you know, it's like, and um, I'm probably going to deal with you more often than I deal with my husband at this point. <laughs> so so, if you're not comfortable with that, you know, that's that's your thing. But uh, and he ended up investing. Um, I actually got his permission before using that quote at, yeah. at the at the uh, in the HBS case, but because it is real and it was no, a genuine, yeah, it was a genuine. I, I didn't take it as a as a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kind of imagine as you're coming in, yeah. you know, talking to angel investors of yeah. all the questions that comes in. It of course, you know, I had to kind of ask, you know, whether your husband would have received the same. I'm sure, or me, probably I don't, not. Yeah, probably not. I, I, I would have I don't not think... been told your wife is well off. So why on earth so are you doing I, this? I, uh, you know, there were a lot of interesting uh, occasions where being a woman kind of changes the conversation a little bit. Yeah. And there were all sorts of things that I did um, kind of to navigate the process. Mm. So I know this is going to sound very weird. I think it's mentioned in the case. Um, I purposefully, for a period of about six to eight months, did not dye my hair. Mm. Um, I, I let the gray roots show because uh, it showed gravitas. It showed that I wasn't, you know, vain or I wasn't whatever it is. And I wanted people to really think I was serious. And instead of just walking in and saying, I'm serious or take me seriously. 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, here I am. I'm working hard and, you know, my sleeves are rolled up and I'm not dying my hair. You know, it's yeah, like it's, no, I, I completely it's, understand. I mean, the amount of uh, ink spilled on Hillary Clinton's hair while she was running for president, honestly, was more than any of her policies. It's ridiculous. It's, this is true. You know, or what she's wearing. You know, there she goes again in fuchsia. I mean, you know, it's... it's so this is... I completely understand. Um, just for context, what Amina's referring to is a case, a Harvard Business School case that was written about you and Balquiz, which I've read with your permission. Um... On, on that, just to kind of stay with that, HBS itself is a place that, I mean, I happened to go there a few years after, and so I'm familiar with the place that also is sort of testosterone-fueled. Uh, a number of, uh, I don't know about the specific jobs you were in, but the companies you were in were certainly very male-dominated in your previous life. So um, talk to us a little bit about how, now being your own boss, essentially, has have you still seen this coming in? I mean, I see it in the corporate world all the time. We all do. Was the gender point an issue when you went to talk to suppliers or distributors or uh, and and if you did dye your hair at some point, did that make any difference? <laughs> so so I I just want to um, stop for a second at the at the statement that you just made with or or the comment that you just made about me being my own boss. I've never in my life as an entrepreneur had more bosses. Mm. Everyone's my boss right now. That's true. So my, my, my investors are my bosses. My employees are my, because you're selling constantly. You're selling to everybody. 
in order, you know, the potential, the whatever. So as an entrepreneur, and you know this as well as I do, um, there are no titles, there are no, there's no structure. You're basically what you make out of yourself and, and, and your, your chances are what you make out of life, right? Um, so you do that through networks and by design, networks are gender biased, Correct. right? Uh, not, not necessarily because people are, are um, uh, you know, against you in any way purposefully, uh, but it just is. I'm going to, you know, invite my chum or my buddy to play golf or whatever. And, and in many cases, I don't notice that, hey, Amira may or may not play golf or Correct. Amira may or may not play squash or maybe whatever it is, right? Um, I actually happen to play squash. So, so you just have to be more purposeful and more structured in digging the, the right channels to people to create those networks. Uh, while in a corporate job, you have this, you have this, you have the foundation or structure, the title, you are director, you are VP, you are whatever, and you start from there. You have a base that you can start, you have HR to go to, you have whatever it is. Here you don't. But another point on that is when a man does it, it's called, he's ambitious. When a woman does it, in many cases, it's called, oh, she's very forward. Yes. Why yes. is she aggressive? So for me, absolutely. And so I think, how, did you yeah, encounter absolutely. that? Absolutely. So if you're calling and saying, you know, Hashem, I heard you and the other guys are going to play squash. Yep. I'm going to come. If maybe my friend Tarek calls me, you know, it's fine. Oh, you know, I mean, why is she being pushy? Exactly. No, and also, I mean, like you could you could probably tell from my voice, I, I'm... I'm uh, I have a loud voice. I, I no, kind of make my I make my point. I, I don't like I don't shy away. That's my personality. And Still, a lot of people misconstrue that. Yeah, part. they don't they think that, that doesn't sit well with them culturally and otherwise. Um, and uh, I have just simply not been apologetic about that. It's it's you know, it is what it is. Um, what I am very careful about, though, is uh, making sure that they understand that um, management and dealing with people comes in different forms, right? So um, if someone is sitting in a room and is quiet, and that applies to the entrepreneurial space and also in the corporate space, that doesn't mean that they're uh, that they are weak. Correct. There are different right. types right. of powers. So what, what it has done for me moving out into the entrepreneurial space is I am a lot more aware of the different styles of how people do things. I'm a lot more uh, deliberate in building my networks while in a corporate setup I, I may or may not have. Um, but also you are constantly being judged um, and you're constantly needing to um, kind of morph and change things. And you also need to be extremely purposeful in what image you want to put out there uh, that, that goes, because think about it this way. When you're in a corporate setup, when I used to work for Facebook and I have a meeting with you, you're expecting someone from Facebook. You may or may not remember my name. 100%. Right? So there's this brand and 100%. then there's a whatever. Well, course, I think I'm you know, yeah, exactly, a co-founder. Exactly. So you're not only building it for yourself, you're building it for, for you know, the, the entire uh, corporation. Now, inside the company, inside the company itself, building a culture is a whole different kind of kettle of fish, as they say. Um, I think we've had very, many, many iterations in terms of the, the, the evolution, uh, of, evolution it. of it and, and, and so on. But um, I think one key thing here is being able to literally extract. I know a lot of a lot of the effort up front is about building a company in your image. But then, if you're successful, you need to start stepping back. Stepping back, and that's when it gets. 
Are you able to do Painful. that? Painful. You find that um, easy? I, I, it depends on which day you ask me, actually. Okay. So uh, some days... Well, I'm, today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on a Wednesday. Uh, so some days it's easier than, than other days. Um, Post-COVID, to tell you the truth, we've had to go back and, and, and yeah. kind of like, all, you know, all, all, all hands, hands in the... Yeah, exactly. But before that, we are literally starting the process of building that second tier of management, stepping back, all of that. That kind of went by the wayside and, and, you know, it's like now get it done kind of thing. I'm, you know, I make coffee for people and, you know, and do stuff and whatever it takes, right? So interesting. So obviously, and you mentioned this in one of the articles I read was a recent uh, LinkedIn article that you put out there, which was interesting. And of course, your consultant was show because you did one of these SWOT analysis things. Um, and one of the things that I picked up there is you put under a negative, high affinity for social interaction. Walk me through this because, I mean, <laughs> I, mean um, I don't know if it's negative, but I want to understand what you had in mind. And I want to just combine it with a question, if you don't mind, because we had this conversation on the phone about, obviously, this having been a period of very difficult period for everybody, challenging, let's put it this way, but also for introspection. So this felt like a result of that. But why did you come out on that side of seeing this as a negative, quote unquote. Two, two aspects to it. One is physically. So I like to go out with people and do things and you can't do that with COVID. It, it, it kind of, you know, being stuck. But that's the obvious one. The not so obvious one is I'm the kind of person who thinks better and analyzes better when I bounce things off of in, people. In, in conversation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Some common. people like to sit in the corner 100%. And, and, you know, pontificate. I, I don't. I but like then to, why did you highlight it as a negative? Because you have less uh, of an opportunity to do that now. Ah, so right. This was, okay. this was COVID related. COVID related. Yes. I thought you thought of it as a trait, kind of a personal trait. That's no, negative. no, no, no. So it, it actually has always been a positive, but in the COVID sense, this was about me how to, you know, making sense of COVID okay. and, and how to deal with. So I, I had serious withdrawal symptoms. I, I'm like, I am so used to sitting, you know, yeah. in an environment where I'm, you know, uh, you know, we're drawing stuff on 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 boards and we're, you know, raising our voices and we're, you know, drinking tea or whatever, right? Not happening anymore. <laughs> Did you find ways to compensate for this during that period? Um, yes, but they weren't as, not as satisfying. Yeah, uh, I mean, I enjoy it. It's not. It's not just about a matter of being no, sure. uh, good, yeah. good for the company or yeah. something you enjoy. Exactly, it makes my day when when I've interacted with someone and You'll feed off other people. Exactly, I learn so much, and I, I'm you know I hope I kind of can change people's perspectives on on things and so on. Um, it's life, right? It's How has that, if you have that kind of personality, because I tend to do this as well, I'm just curious, have you found it, do you find it hard to listen or is that still come naturally to you? So you have two types. You have types that have that kind of high affinity for social interaction, but really um, are terrible listeners. And then others that actually are able to still listen, but feel they need the kind of back and forth. It's a very good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that okay, question. Uh, you'll, ask your, you'll ask your co-worker. Uh, I, I absolutely will. Thank mm, you for giving yeah. me that homework to do today. Yeah, no, it's something no, that yeah. I, I think of myself and I am had to work on. Let's put it this way. Uh, I don't think I was a great listener. I still don't think I'm a great listener. But I've learned over time to read people a little bit more um, and understand that they actually want to get something off their chest they may just do it in a different way than I do, and maybe it's not as forceful to your point earlier that you made, and that doesn't make them not wanting to participate. It's just they're just not that forceful. So if it's not going to, you know, if you're not going to give them the opportunity to do it, they're just not going to do it. Whereas I will always find a way to interject. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think if you were to ask me to choose, I would probably say I'm not a great listener. Um, but I've learned to be 
more of a listener, I think, um, in uh, because maybe five, six years ago, I started very seriously doing, uh, like being engaged in, in mentorship relationships. Okay. Um, and if you are not in tune with the needs of your mentees, you're not going to get anywhere. In what capacity? Is that uh, as a... Women... Okay, female. Group. Yeah. Female, okay. Entrepreneurship or business in general? In general. general. In general. Just, uh, you know, how do you navigate the, the work world? Have you found that very fulfilling? Extremely. I just wish... If I had a wish in life, mm. it, it would have been to have a woman, a senior woman mentor at the beginning of my career. I had great men mentors. Mm. Um, actually, one of them um, was uh, the, the head of the president of, of PepsiCo for the region, um, who I don't know why, for some obscure reason. Took a liking to. When, when I was, I was 22, 23, um, and I, I well... A good reason would be that I was the only woman executive in the region for, for Pepsi. You stood out. But I was, I was a nobody. I was like 22, 23 and uh, just starting out. And he literally picked me out and he said, you're going to work with me on you know, our expansion in the following areas. Um, and then it continued even when I left to HBS. And, you know, um, maybe right up until a, a week before he passed away, we, we were still in, in touch and so on very recently. So, um, so I think he, just having a mentor was was fundamentally life-changing for me. But I always I always felt like I need to hear from a woman. There's so much that this guy doesn't know about what it is, you know, um, be it a work-life balance, be it, you know, um, to your point earlier, how to come across, all of that. So, so many things. Are there formal networks? Because incidentally, it's interesting, one of our last episodes just came up. It was a, uh, we had a female guest as well, and, and this came up. And she, similar to you, lamented the lack of um, those networks, at least in a kind of more public forum. Maybe they're informal. Are there any that you want to share with, with listeners that they can go to or talk to? Because I think it's a very powerful thing, and it's certainly lacking, both for men and women, by the way. So not enough is the answer. Okay. Uh, but I actually part, I'm part of two to three uh, women's networks. Okay. They're very informal. They're very private, um, you know, there's probably less than 25 people in each one of them, okay. but they tend to be, they tend not to be from one uh, walk of life. Okay. So they're all professionals, but they're, you know, okay. uh, they, they kind of span the gamut in terms of uh, professions. Um, so very rarely, for example, do I have the opportunity to talk to a surgeon and hear, sure. you know, what she's going through or, you know, whatever it is. So, and, and um, one of them is actually in the States. So I actually traveled and for it. Uh, for it. And um, we, that was a little bit more organized, even though I knew the people for years, it was HBS based, but, but private. Um, and um, they invite leading women from the community to actually talk to us about, you know, what they do, what, you know, what they face. And, and there's, uh, there are a lot of exercises and so, but it's not, it's not something that's all year round other than the emails and the whatever, and the lunch here and there and, and so on. But um, no, there's a huge need for more of that. No, I 100% agree with you. And I'm growing up in my career, did not have many mentors in finance, especially. I mean, I, when I started in 97 at Merrill Lynch, first of all, there weren't many Arabs, frankly, in New York on a trading floor. And even if they weren't Arab, it could have been. So I did not have that for a very long time. And, there, and, and so funnily enough, similar to you, but for different reasons, I also take that very seriously. So I tried to mentor formally and informally a whole number of people over the years 
through formal programs and informal programs, because I fully recognize that need, and I feel that had I had some of it, um, most certainly in my first 10, 15 years post-graduation from college, would have made a huge difference. And uh, because the little things that we know now that we didn't know then, uh, we're trying through this podcast and other ways to build a bit of these informal communities so people can at least reach out to you or to me or to anyone with that need um, because uh, there really isn't enough of it, uh, for sure. And there, and especially because they're also on on, on the female side, um, there hasn't been um, that much collective experience to tell you the truth. I mean, women, women have been yes, working, but not sort of in corporate setups or whatever, especially in the region for that long. And certainly in the startup world that that's just, so, um, so I actually work with a couple, two to three, um, sort of younger entrepreneurs who just, I could literally tell them, here's what I went through. Do this, do not do that. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. And I, by the way, also speak to others who have been kind of down the path and, and ask the same questions and so. So on your Twitter bio, you identify yourself as a basketball mom. Yes. I actually thought it was just sort of like a soccer mom term until I realized that your son actually plays basketball. So it wasn't like soccer mom. It was like actually basketball It's real, mom. yeah. So, so walk us a little bit through uh, through that, having one, uh, one both are boys right Both boys. so one son that was i suppose with you through this lockdown period this whole situation and then another one that's in college and if you go back a few years uh back when you were starting your business your husband was starting his own business as well then you have two young children in the house i mean how do you manage uh badly <laughs> no um is it by being very disciplined uh in terms of time and all of that and scheduling or is it sort of you know what it's going to be chaos for the next couple of years come what may let's just embrace it I actually don't think that you can be that disciplined with uh, younger children in the house. They kind of drive their own agenda. Yes, you can have some structure, but discipline is is kind of a, a step further from, from that. And I think the biggest aha moment for me came when I realized that, A, I do not have to keep all the balls in the air all day, every day, right? I can drop a couple, and if I can choose which one to drop, then I'm ahead of the curve, right? Like today, I'm not going to make it to the basketball game. Or today, I, we're, you know, we're having takeout. Or whatever. Yeah. Just at least that gave me a sense of control. Uh, hey, there are three more balls That's in the air or yeah, four yeah. more balls in the air or whatever. You declare the balls that are going to be dropped ahead of time. So you're like, guys, I'm dropping the, the food ball today. Or yes. you just... You no, do. I do. Okay. I do. So uh, I think a key part of not going to the game is telling him in advance. Okay. Um, uh, in some cases, they were elated when I when I told them because I tend to be very loud there as well. I kind of scream mm. from the from the sidelines and tell the ref what I think of. You oh, know. you're one of those. Oh yes. Mom, okay. <laughs> it's like, but, why, what do you mean yeah, you didn't yeah, see yeah, that? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, okay, okay. you just can't. Good I mean, to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, um, it's um, so both my kids have been playing since they were five, and and uh, if, when you do it in the states, you're you're. Um, you're driving to travel games. It takes a, it takes yeah. over your life. Yeah, 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 it becomes 100%. your life. So I've what had brought to, them into basketball? Just out of uh, was well, it a family legacy or was it just one is six eight and okay. the other is six six. So height, <laughs> height, pretty much natural. <laughs> yeah. So um, they uh, they they just loved it, and and we encouraged them obviously. But but my point here is, if you choose to immerse yourself in something, um, aside from work, right? Um, traditionally. 
the way I was taught to look at it, which is completely wrong, is you need to manage them, you need to balance them, you need to make sure they're each independently okay. Could not be further from the truth. Really, what where I was able to make peace with this whole process is merge them together, you know, you know, take your conference call outside of the game and then yeah. go in. Um, talk about the game at work. Uh, talk about, you know, try and get a new client at the game. Just be you kind of a thing, because that's what worked for me. Like if this whole idea of compartmentalizing your life is very painful to me. So how to define to me how you think uh, about hybridity, because it's something I have to deal with to some extent. And when I look at even the kind of things I'm interested in today, we talked about the lighthouse earlier in many ways, it's very hybrid. It, 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 it reveals to me at least kind of a hybrid identity in terms of the things I'm interested in. And they are a combination of my upbringing, grew up in Egypt, but I was in German school, and then going to the States early and so on and so forth. You are also a bit of a mix in the sense that you grew up, if I understand correctly, in Kuwait for the most part, but then um, obviously spent a long time in the States. But you also went to Egypt for college, which is very interesting. I want to hear a bit about that. I mean, because you were Egyptian, obviously, but hadn't lived in Egypt. Um, that must have been, um, I'm going to put it mildly. Uh, <laughs> culture shock. Yeah, culture <laughs> shock. So, so I'm a bit of a hobo, actually. Uh, so I grew up in Tanzania, Kuwait, London. Uh, wow. Went to school in, boarding school in Switzerland for a while. Okay. Just a, a combination of different. Um, so hybrid, you really take into the max. Big time. And then as an adult, uh, I work, when I worked for Pepsi, I basically worked, I lived all over the region, everywhere from Beirut to, to Casablanca. So how do you think about identity for yourself and then for your kids as well? That's an excellent question. Um, up until very recently, when asked where is home, mm. uh, my answer would be where the kids are at. But since they've left, <laughs> <laughs> or one, one, is about, one left and the other is mentally not there, um, it really is about, uh, where I feel more, most, most where my values are, so to speak. Um, and that up until this point is um, the U.S. still. That's kind of where my... my like, Culturally. Culturally. Um, I feel very, very comfortable living in the UAE because it is a hybrid environment by design, right? It, how cosmopolitan it is really, you know, speaks to me. Um, the, I think everything that is done here, be it everything from, from the, you know, the architecture to the culture to where is um, a concoction of the people who have, you know, come together in this place, right? And that's what I love about it. It isn't so much that it is necessarily in the Middle East or a Middle Eastern con uh, country, even though that's a plus. Mm -hmm. um, but had it only been that, I don't know if I would have felt the same way moving to another country in the Middle East. So mm -hmm. back to your point about, about Egypt. Um, my, my parents are Egyptian. Um, I had never lived in Egypt up until the day I started freshman year. Um, so I look the part, I speak the part. Uh, you can't question it. I mean, mental I, note, I'll send my son there and just see what happens. Cause I think still, <laughs> I, I want to hear from you first. Cause that must've been a bit traumatic. It was very traumatic actually, mm. because people look at you and hear you and expect you to kind of be, you know, to yeah, in a certain way. Yeah. yeah. And I was looking at people, I was like, who are these people and why are they saying what they're saying? And, you know, um, my expectations and just everything was completely different. And it took me literally the entire period that I was there to understand, to it, understand it. it. Yeah. So I've made very good friends, um, but I don't know, to tell you the truth, and, and the jury's really out on this. Sure that I can actually live in Egypt. Sure. Uh, no, fair enough. I grew up in Cairo all, all my life, and, and 
I still don't know today if I'd want to live there. But to your point, I have some of my best friends, if not my best friends, all from still from Egypt. You build fantastic bonds, and there is something to the place. I think I'm obviously biased, but that I think that is extremely, in a strange way, grounding and very compelling. Um, but when you go to the U.S. today, do you consider yourself not that it matters? But I'm just curious. Arab American? Is that how you see yourself there? Yes, very much. So. You do. Yes. Okay. Um, and I've never really had. Maybe I was lucky. Yeah. I've never really had the issues or the problems that Arab Americans tend to sure. kind of... Uh, well, again, there's hybridity. Your yeah. experience is not your common one. Exactly. So so uh, I, I may have just been lucky, but um, I think I've had more issues being a woman than than sure. being an Arab, right? That, that these were... Um, I've just been embraced uh, by whatever kind of group I was starting from. I went to the States actually to go to HBS yeah. and just stayed. Um, but I'm going to say those kind of institutions as well. I mean, they shield you, right? So I had a similar uh, bringing, um, uh, background in the States, and I never felt anything. And I'm very well aware that a big part of it is that. I mean, being part of those, frankly, elite institutions and framework really shields you in a very, very large degree. And that's a very different experience that you or I have had than many uh, Egyptians that I know, other Arabs that grew up in the States through the system. So I think in many ways in that, I don't know if we're lucky or not, but definitely uh, created a far more positive experience in a yes, sense. Yes, I, I would I would agree with that. Uh, I don't know about my kids, though, like uh, because they were born there, they kind of didn't know anything else. So there was no point of comparison for them. But uh, I actually think that uh, hybridity is, is now that I'm kind of looking at it in hindsight, is, is a great thing because we were talking earlier before we started our conversation about how dynamic the world is and and the need for constant change. And if you've come up through a hybrid kind of environment, you're really comfortable with change, 100%. right? And that is uh, a great kind of skill set to have, um, especially going forward, um, career-wise, personally, whatever it is. But in your case, I feel because of your background, because of how you grew up and where you grew up, the Arab component of it is it's obviously still very much there. Do you care for that to be the case with your children? I mean, they'll have their own view anyway, but I'm just curious what you think. It's something I certainly think about. Do you care that the Arab identity part is there and an important component? And you're like sort of come what may, and if it's 5%, fine. If it's 50, that's fine too. Uh, I care that it's there. Okay. Definitely. Okay. The percent is theirs. Okay. Uh, so so they have. it has to be demand-based, not supply-driven, no. so to speak. <laughs> uh, so actually, it's interesting. My, my younger son um, is more interested in uh, literature and poetry and things like that. Um, so obviously, but more on the modern side. So the rap side of it, the sure. whole, the whole, sure. all of that stuff. So I started actually introducing him to Zajal or Zagal, yeah, Zagal uh, Salah yeah. Jaheen and yeah. all of that stuff. And, and, uh, and he was in awe. It's yeah. like he hated Arabic class. And once I started introducing... You gave him a different angle. Exactly. Uh, and he's like, oh, I want to read more about this guy or whatever. So it, it has to come from them. Thank you for joining us on the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashem Montasser. We're produced by Chirag Desai. Please subscribe to our podcast by going to thelighthouse.ae slash podcast where you can find all of our previous episodes. You can also connect with us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE. We'll see you in two weeks.